all the comedians have joked about it. Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, Cedric the Entertainer. Like, if you're running, I'm running. That whole thing where we, we're like, no, we're not going to ever investigate the strange noise. Um, No, we're not going to go down in the basement like Brianna says in Candyman. I love that. The audience, (laughs) I was like, the best part with like actually in the theater too, with the audience like losing it over that. That was so funny and so true because it was so true. Horror Movie Survival Guide is a weekly podcast where I, Gorehound Julia Marchesi, delves into my horror movie notebook to corrupt another one of my longtime chums, Terry Gamble, who is hiding in the creepy horror closet. My mission is to learn the gospel of horror movie survival and to incorporate Julia's wealth of wisdom to become a final girl disciple. Join us as we take a deep dive into everything from OG horror to newly released films, but prefer the classics on VHS. We'll talk about obscure details that no one else notices. Spin off into alternate casting universes, crush on some dodgy, foxy fellows, and creepy uncles, and arm ourselves with the knowledge necessary to become the the final final girl. Hi guys, welcome to Horror Movie Survival Guide. I'm Terry, and this is Julia. Hi, <laughs> and we are so excited today to have a wonderful guest. I have been a super fan of following, I think mostly via Twitter. I, I discovered, I was like, oh my goodness, this woman is amazing, brilliant, and she loves horror. I need to know more. So I'm so excited that she agreed to come onto our show today. We have the amazing, phenomenal, fantastic Tananarib Du on our show today. She is a writer, educator, producer. She's an award-winning author. She teaches something that I I wish while I was at UCLA back in the day that I could have taken this class, but she's made it available on the internet for us anyway, so we can still take it virtually now. Black horror and Afrofuturism. She teaches at UCLA. She is also an executive producer on Shudder's groundbreaking, wonderful, mind-blowing documentary that I'm obsessed with that I tell everyone to watch. Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Um, And she and her husband, amazing collaborator Stephen Barnes, um, wrote A Small Town for season two of The Twilight Zone on CBS All Access. What? Um, One reason I have, well, now Paramount Plus (laughs) as well. Um, She has been writing... um, uh, speculative fiction and more for more than 20 years. Um, she's won multiple awards, NAACP Image Award, British Fantasy Award, um, and she just keeps on writing. And I can't wait to hear more about all of that. And she's also a big champion of just wonderful black horror and the new film Candyman. So we're going to get into that conversation today. Welcome to Nana Reeve to our podcast, to Horror Movie Survival Guide. Welcome. Thank you. You say my name great, by the way, like, like you've been saying it your whole life. I love it. Oh my gosh. Yes, of course. I, yes. And I like that you have the pronunciation beautifully on your site. So that was like, when I didn't know, I was like, brilliant. (laughs) She knows. I do. I've always known. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So um, tell us, I guess, about how you got into writing. I want to know the genesis of that and what made you fall in love with writing. And then uh, we'll get a little more into horror, but what made you fall in love with writing? I, you know, I feel like I was a born writer, to be honest. Um, I don't remember a moment uh, falling in love except just doing it, you know, when I was four, typing paper in half. Voila, I had a book (laughs) and uh, called Baby Bobby. (laughs) Uh, Littered with misspellings, I have to say. I didn't have a copy editor, but uh, (laughs) I think it was was a bunch of sketches and captions about 
a day in the life of a baby, they say, right, what you know. So at the end, the, uh, the last page, I wrote the liner notes. <laughs> baby Bobby is a book about a baby. The author is Tanana Do spelled baby and author wrong. But the point is, I knew. I was just like, I'm an author. This is a book. And every decision I made in school was all about being a writer. Wow. Published author at four. There you have it. Oh, That's yeah. how it starts. Not published, but you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> you were your own independent press. So I, I, I respect that. That's amazing. Um, how did you re- discover horror? How did you fall in love with that? That I basically had no choice because <laughs> my late mother, Patricia Stevens Dew, who was a very well-respected civil rights activist, she she was posthumously inducted into the Civil Rights Hall of Fame in Florida. Wow. In college, she would turn up in my history books if I looked in the index. So it was, it was like that. But wow. she also had this other side to her where she loved horror. I mean, absolutely. I think that was absolutely her favorite film genre. So from a very young age, I was watching all the old black and white universal classics, The Mummy, The Wolfman. When we let her babysit for my three-year-old, he came home talking about demons. And I was like, what? And I was oh, like, no. Grandma. <laughs> but is that something when you was watching it? Charmed with Grandma. Um, so, yeah, she loved that. And and it's it's really only much, much later now that I started to give it some, some thought that I really truly believe that the reason she loved horror so much was not in spite of being a civil rights activist, but because of it, because she had been tear gassed as a young woman, wore dark glasses the whole rest of her life because of sensitivity to light. So she had this very real physical trauma and also emotional trauma. And, you know, the more I talked to horror fans, I realized a sort of thread that we all share in common, or a lot of us share in common, which is using horror as a way to cope with trauma. Mm -hmm. So of course, racial trauma would be no different. When you were watching these movies when you with your mother when you were young, was it something that it was was it scary to you? Or you found it comforting because you were there enjoying it with your mother? Oh, it's scary. I mean, <laughs> never, like to the point, I don't remember having nightmares that made me want to stop watching horror, although I do remember nightmares. I had this giant doll, like maybe she was three feet tall, who used to sit uh, at the foot of my bed. And it was almost like opening credits when I was going to have a nightmare. <laughs> Her head would slowly start to turn to look at me. I was like, oh, I'm about to have a bad dream. Oh, no. As if the bad dream hadn't already started. But no, it was like, I think for kids who watch horror, if you like it, which I did, it's more of a fun roller coaster ride that I never thought any of it was real. I didn't believe in ghosts or witches or any of it. Never have, really, honestly, uh, except other people's stories. They tell me and I I'll believe you if you tell me a story, but I've ne- I'm not, that's not the way I'm wired up. So to me, it was all imagination and it was just fun. I equate it to a horror to a roller coaster ride as well. I think it's a thing where it's you have a thrill, but it's safe. Yes, exactly. yeah, within reason. Exactly, it was a safe thrill, and and I think my mother was just having a slightly different experience. I think she also thought it was fun, but also those monsters represented something specific, probably to her, uh, in a way that that I wasn't relating to, except on an unconscious level. Like if I watched a movie like The Mole People. I got that the mole people were subjugated and they were, when they were being whipped, 
I could I was really feeling that sort of as a slavery metaphor, which is obviously what the the filmmakers intended. It's so interesting in all these old movies that have these metaphors for subjugation. No black people in the movie, like ever. Yeah. <laughs> or if you were in the movie, you you really wish you weren't because it was such a caricature or such a stereotype. But but yeah, I could I I got this sort of very self congratulatory. Um, metaphors for slavery that they were doing. And I felt that. So there were some cases like that where I really related to it more on a sociological level. But as a kid, mostly it was just fun. Right. So it's fun, but it's also that subconscious catharsis is what I'm hearing. Yeah. And I think my mom was getting more out of it in that sense because of she'd been through so much. Absolutely. Cool. Well, so hmm? what would you consider your, your favorite horror movie? Oh, my gosh. Come on. Yep. That's hard. I know. It but, is hard, but maybe uh, favorite classic, something favorite new. Um, you know, um, this favorite is different than scariest. So yes. we will ask you that next. We will so, ask you that. <laughs> that's different, I think, for most people. You know, I think if I have to look back at which one I watched the most often that came out when I was younger, maybe Alien. Mm. Ooh, yeah. I mean, with, with, with Nightmare on Elm Street as a close second. Oh, that's but my I watch favorite. All the time. So I think maybe that's my favorite. But in terms of contemporary, get out for sure. For so yeah. many reasons. Um, some of them have to do with the actual movie itself. And some of them just have to do with the impact of the movie. And it's really hard to separate for me because it's had so much impact. Yeah, I would love to hear you talk more about that and the impact that you see or on the culture. What do you um, feel the cultural impact has been of that film? I, it's, I mean, uh, it's almost indescribable. I'll use an anecdote because I was really excited when Jordan Peele reached out to me and asked me to write um, an introduction to mm -hmm. his annotated screenplay for Get Out. And the way I started that introduction was with a story that I hope will answer your question for you. Uh, because in about 2007 or 2008, I have a haunted house possession novel called The Good House. Mm -hmm. And it had been, uh, we were pitching it around Hollywood. Uh, Forrest Whitaker was attached as a director. Blair oh. Underwood was attached as a producer, along with some sisters, uh, Nia Hill um, and D'Angela Proctor. And Steve and I, all of us Black, wow. went to a production company to pitch it. We had a really, really good pitch that ultimately we were going to set up at Fox Searchlight, at least briefly, you know, mm -hmm. a, a tight, tight pitch. And we went to this one producer and he said, listen, and I'm, I'm not going to do his, his English accent because I'm really bad at it. But, <laughs> I'm going to retire my bad impression of his English accent. But he said, listen, uh, I don't want to sound racist or anything. It's my investors. It's not me. But do the characters have to be black? And I oh. think that sums up the state of uh. black horror <laughs> before uh, get out do the characters have because i had heard this about a book called my soul to keep you know which was at uh, samuel goldwyn for a while and they finally ran out of options and were calling me to see if i wanted to pitch a script uh even before i started screenwriting which is why i say they were out of options i had no experience whatever as a screenwriter but that was yeah, but you had proof of great concepts and proof of great books and ideas so well but there's a whole like we could do a whole podcast on on the learning curve, you know, um, mm -hmm. from a prose writer to a screenwriter. And, and I was way at the beginning of that, but they had had an internal conversation. Do the characters have to be black? And I'm thinking my character is Ethiopian 
and suffered uh, uh, slavery in the American South. Uh, so I'm not sure how, but this was the mindset. And it was during this period that I learned that, say you had a movie like Man on Fire, Mm-hmm. starring Denzel Washington, where he might literally be the only black person in the whole cast. And I don't know if that's true of Man on Fire, but it seems to me that there were a lot of movies he was making during that period where he was kind of the solitary black character star. Yep. And that would count as a black film on their slate. And there were a certain number, very few number of movies that they would put on their slate as a black movie. And it didn't matter if it had a black theme or if it was about race. If Denzel was in it, they considered it a black movie. He's so like this, literally in Mexico most of that movie. That's not a black movie. That's like, anyway. Oh listen, my goodness. So this was the mindset. This was the mindset when you were pitching black horror in Hollywood. Blank you have one black star, faces, maybe. Blank faces. You. I, I was very lucky to have um, an executive at Fox Searchlight uh, at the time, Zola Mashariki, who who was a black woman. It was really, really trying. That was how the Good House got set up. That was how. My Soul to Keep got set up and we'd always get stuck at the script stage, but there just wasn't a lot of black horror happening post nineties, especially. Uh, I yeah. started publishing in the nineties, but by the time, you know, my time rolled around the two thousands with adaptation, a lot of it had dried up. So a lot of those directors who, who had really good films in the nineties, Rusty Condit, Tales from the Hood, also mm-hmm. racism as the monster, mm-hmm. right? In the nineties. Right. 95, um, even before that, Death by Temptation, by a filmmaker named James Bond III, Eve's Bayou, Casey Lemons, right? Subtle. All these great... Demon Knight. Demon Knight, right, Ernest Dickerson. So you had all these great uh, films coming out, but the filmmakers didn't get the follow-up. They they kind of couldn't get Tales from the Hood 2 made until after Get Out. And maybe that's the best illustration when you talk about what's the impact. <laughs> Think how many years later that was. Get Out came out, I mean, uh, Tales from the Hood came out in 1995. Yeah. And I think Tales from the Hood 2, maybe 2019 or 2018. Wow. So it's it was a long, dry period in yeah. Hollywood where, where, you, where you didn't have Black filmmakers getting first or second chances. And black characters were appearing in these very marginalized roles, very tropey, kind of sassy friend, sacrificial Negro, first to die. We've seen this all. And by the way, all these tropes are making a comeback, interestingly enough, despite the power of Get Out, which in a nutshell has opened the door for countless filmmakers to get heard at least, to get the meeting at least. I mean, that's the first step. If you can't even get the meeting, how are you gonna get your project made? So, so many people now are in writing rooms in horror, getting meetings in horror. And I mean, black, um, indigenous, you name it. Like everyone, uh, everyone is getting a shot now. Um, there was a movie from Guatemala uh, on, on Shutter. Um, La Llorona that did amazing, you know? And I just think there's just more awareness that scary can come from a lot of different directions and can look a lot of different ways. And horror audiences have really, I think, responded to that because we just want to be scared. We just want, and you can't be scared literally by the same thing you've seen a million times. Right. Horror is about the unknown. So of course, a different mythology, a slightly different take, a slightly different vision is going to be scary. But the reason I say some of those awful tropes are making a comeback is that in the wake of 
the and, and I'm just talking about horror specifically when I talk about Jordan Peele's appeal, but when you talk more generally about black projects, there's also Black Panther that opened up a lot of doors, and Ava DuVernay yep. opened up, and, and Shonda Rhimes. There's like a whole bunch of reasons. That I was wondering about up. that too because I feel like there's a parallel as you're talking about the '90s because I just remember like all these '90s sitcoms that we had that were all these amazing black sitcoms, and then all of a sudden it was like the 2000s. It was like there was none of that. Crickets, right? Yeah. So, so as as Hollywood is rediscovering black people. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and there are <laughs> mandates now, right? Like, so if you turn in a script, sometimes um, even uh, not even that woke an executive will be like, well, why don't we have any black characters? Why don't we have a woman? And why don't we, you know, so there are conversations happening. But because those characters weren't envisioned from the beginning, or sometimes if they are, uh, a black character fits a certain role sometimes in a screenwriter's head. So we end up sort of regurgitating this first to die thing as if it's brand new. It's like, oh, look at us. We put a black person. I just saw Keith David. Keith David survived the thing. Keith David is a legend. <laughs> yes. I just saw him in a pilot. I'm not going to name the show, but a pilot for a supernatural series. I saw it on Netflix. I don't know where it originated, where he died in the first 10 minutes. And I was like, are you serious? David, like David in the first 10 minutes, like mm -hmm. this is 19, uh, I don't know what year, because it's, but again, it's those tropes rolling back around because unfortunately, while there is more awareness about diversity, people are still falling into this trap of not fully developing those characters and using them as kind of monster fodder in service to the the white characters sometimes. And and that's, that's something that we're going to have to still deal with. I think that's why, it's important not just to have casting that's inclusive, but also artists who are inclusive because black characters don't create black characters to throw them away, right? Or to make right. them the, 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 I mean, you can have one who's the comic relief, but you're also gonna have someone who's who's not, who who's the every person character, who is the protagonist to lead us to this story and hopefully will triumph at the end. So it's a mixed bag is what I'm saying, but Overall, I could not be more excited about where the state of horror is right now, especially coming from the viewpoint of a Black woman who, who's been pitching to blank faces for a long time. Dreams do come true. Oh, <laughs> constantly pinching myself. I cannot even tell you. Do you think that if you had seen, you could have seen yourself now that as you were as a kid, would you be surprised at where you are now? Um, I didn't dream as big as having written an episode of the twilight zone yeah that's pretty big so, it's pretty amazing I'm like way beyond where i was dreaming as a kid at this point that's amazing so how did that come about is that through jordan as well totally it's totally and it's the funniest thing because even with horror noir the reason i was approached to be an executive producer was as an educator which i just find so funny because i've been publishing since 1995 and i've been selling you know a script here and there since about 2008 so I see myself as more of a writer, like a horror writer, but they were really more interested because I was teaching this class, The Sunken Place at UCLA, which used Jordan Peele's Get Out as a linchpin to talk about the history of black horror. So it's not all about Get Out, but Get Out is such a great example of black horror that I can open up conversations about the 90s and the 70s, black exploitation, all that, just using Get Out as, as a starting point. Right. And when I tweeted that I was going to do this course and a reporter wrote a story about it monkey paw followed me on twitter when you know the rule if someone follows you and you're following them you can dm exactly ah. right 
So what do you think I did? Because I'm you know, one difference now is at the age I am. I just I don't care. Like if if why why not ask? You know what I mean? It's like all they can yeah, say is no. No exactly. is not. Exactly. And no, if you don't right? if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Yeah, when I was younger, I think I might have been a little more shy about that, but I reached right out and I swear within two hours I had heard from Jordan Peele himself uh, saying, oh, it would be so funny, I could surprise your class. And that's exactly what he did. Like within three weeks of this exchange, he's walking into my classroom in a hoodie and a baseball cap. And we had worked out this routine with me, my husband, Stephen Barnes, and I helped uh, come up with this routine where we'd show the kids a clip from Get Out, sneak Jordan Peele in the back while they were captivated by the clip, which was, by the way, the clip where Rose is dangling the car keys. Okay. And Rose oh, okay. says, you know you're not getting these, babe. <gasps> and everyone awesome. knows what that means. Rose is not a friend. Spoiler, you should have seen it by now. Rose is not <laughs> a friend. She's no. part of it. My class was so triggered. They're yelling at the screen. Oh, yeah. I he's, was yelling at the screen. <laughs> he's, sneaking, he's sneaking in the back. And then just like we rehearsed it, I turned up the lights after this scene. And I said, so what do you think the director is trying to say about the coveting of black bodies? And he raised his hand. It's like, uh, I have a question. And he stood up and started walking in the front of the room. And they went nuts. Oh, they went nuts. What a day. There's uh. like a 10-second clip. that, And that was it. Because a lot of kids were filming. One kid like live streamed his whole talk. But she kept him on private. Like they really protected his privacy. Oh, There's like awesome. a 10-second clip of him walking to the front of the class where you can see everybody going nuts. One girl even walked out of the class, shaking her hands, crying. She was just so over. It was like the Beatles had been like that, <laughs> you know. Oh my and, god! Um, and it was because not just because they loved his film, but because I had used it as such a linchpin for the course. So we started with W. E. B. Du Bois, the scholar, and we, I mean we were you know. So it was like sort of far-reaching, like Birth of a Nation, as it had to do with the use of interracial imagery, mm -hmm. which I think uh, Peel did very intentionally. This is the third rail, so to speak um in certainly historically in the united states and and, mm -hmm. and still depending on where you are and who you're around people don't like interracial couples so it was a perfect starting point for this conversation and what happens when you visit your girlfriend's parents this is an experience a lot of my students have been through so they were just sort of considering him uh basically a god you know when he walked into that classroom and we were not the least bit surprised a little later when he won his oscar yeah right yeah. When someone really captures the human experience in a way that we have never seen, like on screen, like that, like just that beautifully done, it was so real. Oh, I'm like having crying over here. Like this is such a great story. I, Very like, real. And how course, amazing! They, they say it's who you know. Well, mm -hmm. now we knew Jordan Peele, right? So we set up um, a pitch meeting with Monkey Paw, and and we pitched for season one of Twilight Zone. Couldn't quite get the pitch right like couldn't quite land on a, a story that worked for everyone um but then the second season they got back in touch with us oh wow really want you guys to kind of feels bad they just like white well, turn feels bad <laughs> we can't have that <laughs> let's make him feel better let's get so, you right. on there so we the second time was a charm came up with a story uh, that worked for everybody and it was a beautiful beautiful um experience that's my first TV credit that I didn't write myself is The Twilight Zone. Wow. And it was also my husband's first TV credit when he wrote for The Twilight Zone back in the 80s. So full circle for him, oh. new circle for me. Wow. And then my second credit uh, will be this year, The New Horror Noir, 
uh, in terms of writing, in yeah. terms of fiction, by the way, yeah. would be horror noir because they're doing a follow-up Ooh. anthology movie, six episodes, like, you know, in the format of Tales from the Hood, which had four. Yeah. Six separate stories, and Steve and I wrote two of them based on adaptations. So this is like after starting to publish oh. it in 1995. Wow. This year, in 2021, I'll have my first adaptation, again, that I didn't make, my, make myself. Because in 2013, um, Steve and I and my friend Lucina Fisher made a movie, a little short, called Danger Word, which was an adaptation. You know, but it was an 18-minute short that we self-funded. And this is the first time that I, I'll have, like, a real streamer putting together a real budget, hiring directors. Oh, my gosh! And Tom Todd and Rachel True. What? What? One what? of our episodes, like together, like in the same episode. Yes, please. Oh, I'm losing yeah. my mind right now. I'm literally losing my mind. I'm <laughs> losing my mind right now. <laughs> and you know, the, the, I think the most amazing thing about it is that you just had the temerity to send an email. And that's really all it was, is like you just took the chance to say, what if? And then they said, yes, please. And the doors are open. You know what? And it that is true. And, and there's a time that I, I would have been a little more shy about that because Jordan Peele, you know, he wasn't the filmmaker we know now then. Um, he just done Get Out. I, but he was a, a star, you know, he'd been a star since Mad TV and then Ken yeah. uh, Peele. So it's the kind of thing where you could be like, oh, he must get a million notes like this a day, you know, kind of thing. But like I said, I'm just at the age where I don't, I, I don't care. Uh, but you were also preparation meets opportunity too, because it's not like yeah. you were writing forever since you were four years old. Do you know what I mean though? And crafting a story and had an understanding of story and how things, you know, go together. But and you know, just... it's a mind trip. It's a mind trip because when you're shut out for so long, you know, like I, I was just yes, the other I day. Do know. I, I remember <laughs> meeting an executive, like, I don't know where we were. I might've been at a film festival and a producer I was with introduced me to an executive and I handed him a card. And before I walked away, I saw him just drop the card on the floor. <laughs> you know? Oh my goodness. And this wasn't race. This was a black producer. You know, it's just like, but it's just like the access can be so difficult to get. And, and film festivals are great for access, but they're not perfect. You know, it's not like everyone's going to be dying to talk to you. You're more likely to get an audience with someone in a hallway at a film festival than you are just, you know, probably randomly sending a note to their agent from the ether. But, but it, there are a lot of gatekeepers. There are a lot of, there are a lot of gatekeepers in Hollywood. It's, it's a geographically bound business um, where there, for the longest time, there was an idea that if you don't live in the area, you can't work in the area, which hopefully will be changing. But it's not, you have to work for free practically to get in, you yeah. know, if you want to be an intern or an assist. So it's like this whole system set up to weed out people who need income, you know, right? and, and not weed just the, out people who don't live there. Yeah, but they'll also, even if you do have the talent above and beyond, they'll find a way to make you feel like you don't. Right. You know, and like, I just, one of my cohorts, I'm in a, um, an all, um, BIPOC improv like collective group and oh. we you know we meet weekly and like we've talked about that we're like oh we were like oh we didn't think we were good enough or whatever it was and then I have you know group, people from my group booking amazing stuff now and but we had those moments where we we had this moment this last year especially where we were just like oh yeah actually we are good enough <laughs> we're fine we've been doing work consistently for so long we had just been told and been gaslit at certain points in our career that we didn't have the talent for some reason but we do, you do, 
and whoever that was who dropped your card, that was a mistake. Are a lot they of didn't know. women, by the way, in your group? There are, it's mostly women. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big thing too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are just so many, I mean, the idea that women aren't funny and all these lies that, that came out of the comedy world. Cause I used to want to do stand up. That was my, oh. one of my side dreams. Tell, tell, us about I, that. I tell us about that dream. I flirted with it. I did an open mic night at Coconuts Comedy Club back in, I want to say maybe the early 90s. And it was great. But I was, again, same reason I dropped band in high school. I was like, well, this is A, going to interfere with my writing world. And B, the lifestyle, the the, the road, the travel uh, did not appeal. Okay. Yeah, I, I just couldn't see myself living on the road as much as, as comics seem to. And in a weird way, just to keep it completely real, this was sort of during that Deaf Comedy Jam era. I was not a Deaf Comedy Jam kind of personality. So my future would have been like the black comic playing white comedy clubs. I imagine you doing the quirky. Yep. You know? And I, again, I just like, "Mm," I couldn't, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see a path in the comedy. Um, But I could see, I could see how to keep taking those writing classes and keep working on my little stories until I finally broke through. And you still do music too, though, right? Like, I feel like I saw a clip of you playing piano recently that you might have shared. I do play music. I play piano. I was playing the Candyman theme. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> I have a big, beautiful grand piano in my office that I really should play at least once a day. But of course I don't. But I should today. I'm going to play it today. So, um, and yeah, I play in the Rock Bottom Remainders uh, with Dave Barry and Stephen King a few times. What? what? Wait, what? Peak experiences. And again, that's just passing some money in a hallway kind of thing. Dave Barry used to work at the Miami Herald. I work at the Miami Herald. I ran into him in the cafeteria. I'd always wanted to see the Rock Bottom Remainders who played at the Miami Book Fair. And I was like, oh, I've always wanted to, you know. And he's like, oh, well, our keyboardist is going to be doing vocals during an Elvis number. Do you know Jailhouse Rock? And I was like, sure I do, which I did not. But I learned it. That's the point. (laughs) At gunpoint, I couldn't have even remembered the melody to Jailhouse Rock when he said that because I was just like screaming inside. Yes. Uh, because I was going to be able to beat Stephen King. Yes. And that's how I got him to blur my book. You know, it's oh like very God. similar to the Jordan Peele situation. It's If you can just sort of put yourself in the radius, yeah. you know, people are very approachable, but it's so hard to get in that radius. Yes. Um, well, I, here we are. Julia, I, 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 we have to talk about it. Julia's <laughs> freaking out now because I, uh, Julia is a number one Stephen King fan. She just wrapped making her first short film. Oh. I know what you need. It's an adaptation from one of his short stories. Oh, she filmed it in Maine. That, that adaptation. Yes. At his, uh, and she directed. Tell yeah. her everything. Tell her everything, Julia. <laughs> you have to tell her about this. This is amazing. Uh, so do you know about his Dollar Baby program? No. Um, so Stephen King has a program called Dollar Baby where you can buy the rights to certain short stories he has for a dollar for a year. Oh, nice. Um, and so I got it through that program and I shot at the University of Maine, which is where the story takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's set in 1976. And it's the uh, university he went to as well. Um, and the cool thing about the contract is that you, the, you have to send a copy of the finished film for him to watch. Okay. So, because he still wants to see what people does with his work, which I think is so like he doesn't need to do that. Of course he doesn't, but he like this is such a kind thing to do. And like I'm, I've been a Stephen King fan since I was a kid. I'm just about finished reading all of his novels, period. 
So it's All been right, like well, three years of intense, <laughs> an intense study. Uh, so, and this is, I'm getting, so I know what you need, which is in Night Shift is my favorite of his stories. And so I get to put, you know, it's a female character. It's now, it was written by a male that's now coming from a female adaptation and director. So I think it's going to be a real uh, different, but interesting and trying to stay, uh, you know, faithful to the story, but also put my own view on it. Well, I and love she filmed that. it in his dorm room. Like one of the oh scenes God. take place in his in the dorm room Hard, Stephen stayed in. Hardcore. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, amazing. And see, I forgot to mention that my mother also gave me my first Stephen King novel. Which was? The Shining. Okay. Good choice. Which Great. had a lot to do with uh, my love for Stephen King, which basically started from there. You know, I read all that uh, back when they were coming out you know yeah <laughs> the stand, the shine. not the stand that might have been a little before me. no the stand was the 80s yeah yeah i was reading the stand the shine i mean all of them not all of them literally like you but <laughs> well really loved his use of characterization and yeah hopefully that's one of the lessons i picked when i asked him to blurb my book it, it was they shortened it on the actual book but what he did say in the longer version they condensed was that he really admired my my characters and i was like oh my gosh that's wow that's the thing i think i most learned from him uh, and 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 also how to scare the hopefully how to scare people too yes how amazing uh, how very cool what a life this is awesome um speaking of scary things and things that have been scaring us for a long time we got to talk a little bit about Candyman. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's partly why we're here today. And we got the new Candyman that just came out. Uh, yeah, that's why you said it now. <laughs> what was that? Uh oh, I know I can't say it anymore. Uh oh, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> no, I, you're not facing a mirror, are you, Terry? I'm not facing a mirror right now. Good. Have oh. you seen the new Candyman? Yes. yes. Okay. Let's talk about it. Let's. So first, this, I think the, the way you start talking about the new Candyman is to contextualize it. Mm -hmm. And I, I have been doing a lot of work around that. Um, there's a Candyman guide that Universal put out. Oh, wow. Social Impact. You can find that online that I wrote a forward to. Oh, neat. Um, and I'm in a little mini movie that Monkey Paw Universal put together. It was like a panel discussion with uh, Coleman Domingo and me and so brilliant community activists sort of talking about what they were trying to accomplish with the new Candyman. Mm -hmm. And the reason I was asked to do that is, you know, again, through the, the Black Horror Course, and I have a segment on Candyman. In fact, Steve, my husband and I are on the Blu-ray for Candyman uh, in a segment called Unwrapping Candyman, where we talk about a lot of this, which oh, is yes. as much as everybody loves Candyman and you know, obviously one of the scariest movies ever, obviously had an impact on me because I still don't say it five times in a mirror. Who, I mean, what am I crazy? Yeah, no, no I, me neither. We're not trying to do that. None of us are trying to summon that. We nope, are trying to good. be a good final girl. This is why we don't do this. Right, okay. <laughs> so I think it's a good idea since it came out so long ago for people to rewatch that original before they see the new one if they Definitely. can. Yeah, because they, they pull so much from that movie as well for this new one, which I really like that they're doing it in a very respectful way that you, if you, you but you would it's so much richer if you have the backstory from yeah it's very much a call and response mm -hmm. yeah. um, so many things i didn't even notice like phil nobile jr was tweeting from bangoria was tweeting about how the original starts sort of this aerial view of chicago and then the new one it's like sort of this bird's eye i mean not this uh it's like flipped yeah they flip it it's like, it's like the guy it's like i mean really humanizing it more for lack of a better term and i think that 
is the phrase I would use in terms of the entire approach to how the new Candyman deals with Cabrini Green as opposed to the previous one. Mm-hmm. But I will say this as a caveat. Um, you probably already know this, but the original Candyman was adapted from a Clive Barker story called The Forbidden. Right. Yep. And The Forbidden is based in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And although, ironically, he did write it a f- not too many years after there was a... Um, some sort of an uprising uh, nearby that involved a black person in a dealing with police. There's no mention of race in the housing project that Clive Barker writes about. So in terms of what we read, all we see is that Candyman sort of has milky yellow skin. I mean, it's not even quite a real human uh, complexion, but it's not, he's not described as black. And none of the residents are described as black. So this is a story, The Forbidden, that has zero to do with race. It's really more Helen's point of view. She's a graduate student. She's fascinated by this sort of urban jungle. And it's kind of key. an issue of class? Yeah, way more about class. And at one point, she kind of chastises herself for sort of acting like an anthropologist, you know. And, it, <laughs> and, it, and, and this is carried over into the film. So there's a lot of faithfulness to the adaptation. Helen is like she's leading Bernadette through a safari, through the urban jungle and all this. But it, unfortunately, though, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, they decided to insert race into the story. If you're going to base it in the United States, I'm sure in a lot of people's minds, uh, housing project, you're thinking black people. <laughs> but right. more importantly, Cabrini Green was a very, very well-known housing project. Uh, Good Times had been set there. Cooley High had been set there. Because of where it was located in Chicago, tourists could just see Cabrini Green. It was right there in your face, a two-minute walk away, right? So it had a reputation for being really, really bad, even though at the time, there were other housing projects in Chicago that, that had worse crime, et cetera, et cetera. But Cabrini Green was the most famous. So I get why they chose Cabrini Green. And it had this kind of uh, intimidating uh, architecture and maze-like feeling to it. So in some ways, I can see, yeah, Cabrini Green, perfect. But when you make Candyman black, and when you make the residents of Cabrini Green black, then that faithful adaptation takes on some unintended overtones that I say don't age super well, you know? No. If, and, it, and it's really obvious looking back on the original Candyman that it was set like right before the Clinton crime bill, you know, quite famously with uh, stronger um, penalties for crimes and some states adopting like three strikes uh rules that that we're still trying to climb out of so it's not like that bill created mass incarceration but it it didn't help it didn't help it exacerbated an already growing problem right this very punishment oriented kind of feeling in society uh dealing with crime and black people and so of course the original candy man would have the black thugs in the bathroom attacking helen which doesn't happen in the short story by the way um or sweets to the sweet written in feces on the wall in the bathroom, which looks great on screen. But when you kind of pull back and ask yourself, well, who exactly is living in a place where they have handwriting and feces on their wall? It's not a very flattering portrait. And um, so it, it has some kind of uncomfortable resonances with, as 
Dr. Robin Armin's Coleman mentioned in, in the documentary Horror Noir, um, King Kong even, you know, I mean, with, with Tony Todd chasing after Helen or, or more, or Birth of a Nation, which had a lot of the emotional uh, story hinging on terrified white women running away from men in blackface. So again, it's like touching that third rail, that same third rail that Jordan Peele was uh, using in Get Out because there's already so much emotion built around these relationships. At the same time, Bernard Rose with with Candyman was also building on the, the anxieties, the racial anxieties of the country at the time to help make it scarier. And I don't think he in particular had black audiences in mind because the model for Hollywood is never (laughs) marginalized groups, right? So it's always sort of geared toward a white gaze and often a white male gaze. Um, But despite that, black audiences were terrified by Candyman because, you know, black people didn't show up in many horror movies in that number. Even if you didn't have like hugely significant parts, Casey Lemons ironically had a part, but she died pretty quickly. And I would say needlessly because she didn't even say Candyman five times. Let's just go with that. Right. (laughs) I mean, she didn't break the rule of the movie. Why you got to go? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So it was just so obvious that to me anyway, as a viewer, I'm thinking, well, of course you have to put Casey Lemons in this. You can't just have this white woman walking through the projects. It would look so racist for Helen to be saying, Jesus, it stinks, which is a, a real thing Bernadette says. Um, so Bernadette kind of speaks things that Helen can't say. Mm. And also the fact that she has a black friend makes it a little more cool that she's doing this at all, a little less intrusive, a little less, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but this is where the new candy man is picking up. Right. So it's like, yes, everybody's super scared by the old candy man. We love that addition that Bernard Rose and Clive Barker brought to the film, which was saying candy man five times, which was not in the short story. Great addition. Um, Tony Todd was awesome and Candyman. Yeah. Great addition, right? But his they voice. All, oh. Yeah, his voice. And I love so that he, he treats wanted... it like it's like a Shakespearean part. Like you just feel like you could like he's there's so much backstory in in the way he speaks. You can tell he knows it all. It's so beautiful. It is. And he's really one of the things that um saves the original Candyman from from feeling like just way too much, you know, so that more people might have had issues with it at the time because he elevates. I think he Definitely. elevates it, you know. He yeah. doesn't seem like, quote unquote, just the black boogeyman. He's just so alluring. And, you know, I've interviewed Tony Todd for the uh, the online Sunken Place course that you mentioned, which I'll just mention is at www.sunkenplaceclass.com. All right. Yes. And he talked about how fans, black fans, you know, really were drawn to his power and you know so a lot of black viewers didn't just on the surface have any problems with the original candy man or at the time i think it's just over time people look at it like "Mm, that doesn't really sit that great right now and i think that's kind of the place where monkey paw was coming in based on this script by jordan peele and lynn rosenfeld and then nia DaCosta is brought in as a director and i'm sure she brought her own stank to the script because they're all co-credited was to look at the questions raised by the the changes that they made in the adaptation from the short story to the film. It's like, okay, if you're gonna lean into blackness, let's lean into blackness. If you're going to lean into this housing project, Cabrini Green, then let's talk about it. What it like 
So as opposed to it's the a 90- real character in the new one. Yeah. And it was kind of a character in the old one too. And it was mm-hmm. a character in the short story as well. Um, but they really sort of asked what it means when a community is scattered and you have nothing left but this sort of ghost town that used to be Cabrini Green. And I think that's where a lot of the brilliance of this new Candyman rests is that you have black gentrifiers and white gentrifiers, right? So uh, Brianna, who's Anthony's um, girlfriend slash, I don't know if they're how serious they are as a fiance, but they're living together. She's well enough to do to have this apartment and, and this you know area that has been transformed from an inner city to here's this cool art gallery and you know you can see all the like there's a whole foods around the corner somewhere yep. right yep. <laughs> also, i was just gonna say i was like the signs poster are all there you got your whole foods you got a dog park like yeah, you know it's all there and all some artisanal these, something else around the corner as well yeah so all of these new residents are there kind of on top of the ghosts of the forgotten old residents and, you know, as Yatasha Womack, who, who was a reporter in Chicago and grew up there and wrote a book called Afrofuturism that is pretty much the seminal book on Afrofuturism, was pointing out this was a community. You know, it had its problems, but people had networks or friendships. You could you knew you could walk from here to there. Generations. People lived there for generations, felt pride about living there. And all of those voices are snuffed silent now. They're gone. It's just like as if it never was. And that's where Candyman rises up. And also, I would I, I would think the most important alteration that the new Candyman makes is to give Candyman more of a sense of purpose. Because in the short story, Candyman just wants to be remembered, right? Mm-hmm. Which right. is kind of true in this one, too. Yeah. But with a, a more depth to this notion. Um, well, he's imbued with history this time. Like we yeah. get a full, really rich history of the the metamorphosis of Candyman and the purpose exactly. as well. Exactly. I, I think so it's more like a Benji Angel. That you have this kind of uh, meta layer to it where you, you know, basically I felt like the movie was saying, you know, he's saying use art to tell my story, right? Because oh. the original Candyman's a painter, this gentleman's a painter, and like all of it, and her father was a painter. So, you, you know, he's using art to get the story out. But then also this film is also using art to get the story out. So I thought Absolutely. that was neat. And asking itself questions about the role of the artist in getting the story out. Yes. You know, because if you think about it, this Candyman was supposed to come out in the middle of the summer of 2020. Yes. I thought about that the whole time. Right. I mean, so it's it was speaking directly, almost prophetically to to where the country was going to be. But when you're an artist trying to talk about real life hashtags and real life issues, um, how do you know when you're catering to a white gaze yourself? And, and, and this is sort of a constant process that black artists, especially because, you know, one hit in Hollywood can change your life. It's not that's not a joke. So mm-hmm. uh, a suggestion that might have sounded terrible, <laughs> you know, when you first started out, the like the deeper you're in the process, the more you get to know people that like people on a personal level. If they say something kind of whack, you might not notice. You mean, you're just like, oh, okay, I guess. And, and as an artist, I ask myself that, you know, when, when people bring projects to me, um, to what degree can I stay within my personal integrity and tell this story? And to what degree is it performance for the white gaze? Hmm. 
it's a tough question. It's always a question. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that's a really tough thing as an artist of, I think that's always the artist conundrum, right? Like who is this art for, you know, ultimately. And like, you need funding. I just watched another movie that um, just came out on Netflix this last week called, um, or a couple of weeks ago here now called really love. Um, it's director Angel Christie Williams. And it's just funny because I had watched Candyman on like Thursday and then I watched this on Saturday and it's um, set in a gentrifying Washington, D.C. neighborhood and it's an artist as well. Oh. So it's like these beautiful black male artists, uh, both featured. Um, this one stars Uzo Dubo, Blur Underwood as well and a bunch really? of other people. What? Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's called Really Love. Really Love. I'm a huge Blair Underwood fan for life. Yeah. Who so, is um, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hello, um, but it's it, it's a romance and drama, but it's interesting because it's it's it was fun to watch these kind of in the same weekend together because it was just like oh my gosh, and it was kind of asking the similar questions, but this one is through romance versus horror, um, but also dealing with blackmail artists and like what it means to sell your stuff, mm-hmm. what it means as an artist to try to break through, like who's getting shows like straight out of art school, why does it sometimes take black artists longer to hit? Yes, and you, you know. know- Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I was just I was just remembering. You know who also had a great conversation about this was Boots Riley. I'm sorry to bother you. Yes, the character Detroit is so woke and so down, but then she does her art show, and in a lot of ways, this is the most painful part of the movie for me, where she's literally inviting the audience to to throw things at her, yep, to cause her pain and discomfort as a performance. I was like, oh wow, that's so deep. Yep. That tore me up, that part, especially. I was just like, oh, my, the layers, again. Layers. Yeah. So for when people say the new, you know, I, I mostly the Candyman has been super well-received, and it's performed really well, especially considering that we're in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there were a couple of uh, reviewers grousing that it was didactic, you know. And I was mm-hmm. thinking about that. Okay, there's some dialogue that's super didactic, yes. But at the same time, it's also very meta because it's not just talking about the scene it's talking about the movie itself, as far as I'm concerned. So yeah. it's intentionally didactic, which I think is different than being accidentally didactic. I just, again, like you we were talking about, about the timing of it, the fact that this movie was supposed to come out like literally in the peak of the George Floyd summer, right? Yeah. And then this was written before that and how relevant it felt. I think that's probably why maybe people felt that like, oh, it feels like it's preaching. I'm like, no, this was before. This was written. These words are written before mm-hmm. y'all woke up and join the party. Do you know what right. I mean? Like this was already in the zeitgeist. You just are hearing it now because now you've been listening to more things. If True. this had come out before that, you wouldn't have even had the same kind of conversation. And it would have I mean? been like, so clearly a coincidence that even there's a character named Brianna. Like yes. his girlfriend is named Brianna and then Brianna Taylor was killed by Louisville police. Yep. So it's like, yeah, it really did have its finger on the pulse of, of where we are as a country. And I think Monkey Paw is really gifted at that. It's so really good. Did. So, and I even call it a monkey paw method. You know, I'm <laughs> going to coin my own phrase here. I like that. It applies to all three of the horror films that Monkey Paw has done Get Out, Us, and Candyman. Uh, the first thing that, that the first characteristic is that they're black stories, black protagonists, whether or not they have to do with race as much. Like, Us isn't that much about race, but it's very consciously black. <laughs> In yes. fact, we consciously cast very dark skinned actors and wanted to be them all to look like they could be in the same family as he put it um so there's that we're not doing that like cosby show right get the other kids <laughs> right so there's that level of like just sort of racial consciousness secondly um 
it's entertainment on the surface, but if you want to break it open and have a conversation about the themes, you could do that too. You could have a syllabus on the course for all three of these movies. Um, right. Us having to do more class and the haves and have nots and, and underground society and all that, but still very conversation worthy. And the third thing, and I think ultimately maybe the most important for the survival of black horror as a subgenre, because it was taking some hits, it was taking some hits, is that the movie is very careful and how it portrays violence against black people, mm-hmm. especially racist violence, okay? So yes, there's a lot of violence in Candyman. There's a lot of body horror, which I think is a great choice. Yes. Because it doesn't trigger the same way, you know? And Cronenberg, him peeling his skin style stuff. Yeah. Right? It's like, oof. Right. And, 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 and everyone, so- everyone can relate to that. It's so creepy. Yeah. So you've got the, I love the fly. I love body horror, uh, but it doesn't remind me of something that happened to my great grandfather. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not like my great grandfather got bitten by a bee and started transforming. So it's fantasy horror, fantasy violence. And when he, they do have violence against black people in the new Candyman, especially think about it. William's sister as a child played that game in her bathroom mirror, but it's behind the closed door. Yeah, we don't even see what happened, and the lynching of of uh, of Daniel, the original Candyman, is a puppet show. It, they don't suggest us, and I think for a lot of newcomers to horror, especially black horror, and and for white artists who want to convey horror with black people, they really feel like the way to go is to lean into that racist violence. That that's the only way we'll understand how it felt. You know, it's supposed to be shocking and visceral and yeah, it is, but it's also very off-putting to a lot of black audiences to, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much we deal with, whether it's our teenage kids or memories from when we were teenagers, family history, all those stereotypes about how black people would act in movies. Like if, like Richard Pryor, all the comedians have joked about it, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, Cedric the Entertainer, like if you're running, I'm running. That whole thing where we, we're like, no, we're not going to ever investigate the strange noise. Um, yes. No, we're not going to go down in the basement like Brianna says in Candyman. No, nope, I nope. love that the audience. <laughs> I that was like the best part with like actually in the theater too with the audience like losing it over that. That was so right. funny and so true because it was so true. Because that's a sensibility, and it, it, in part, it's a stereotype. But in part, I think it really comes from so much history of having to run, having to flee, being chased, feeling singled out, feeling unsure of how safe you were because you're in a minority and you don't know how your neighbors feel about you, right? Um, So that kind of sensibility follows us into the movie theater. That's why we're yelling at people who do things we wouldn't do. And and that's why I enjoy seeing... uh, Nia DaCosta and Monkeypaw kind of have fun with those stereotypes, like even in Us, uh, when Lupita jumps out of the car, when, when they've hit that that tethered, and uh, got, the father Gabe says, and your mom's getting out of the car. <laughs> yes. Jordan Peele says, because we, we, I think he discussed this in one of my classes, because uh, he's come like three times at least, maybe four times. Oh. It's like, you have to acknowledge that sensibility to put the audience at ease. If you're gonna do something that goes counter to a behavior that 90% of the people in your audience would do, 
you have to at least acknowledge that it's happening. Yeah, that's a comedy thing too. That's like an SNL thing where they have that every man who's got who's always like looking at incredulously like what is going on. Yeah, to help the audience have a way in. That's why some of the best sketches. Yeah, are that, and I think because of that background that he has with that style of writing and building tension You're and knowing how to right. let audiences in, I think that comes from that as well. It's so great. In our online course, we, he had a whole conversation. This was on Skype, and I, I still don't see how Skype fumbled the bag, as they say, but uh, yeah. it, it was a Skype interview even before he got his Oscar. But we asked him about that comedy horror connection, and he broke that down um, as he breaks down everything brilliantly. Mm-hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. It's like you just have to always have that audience reaction in mind. And so many horror creators will take the lazy route. You know, it's like have your character do something stupid and just expect that to fly. Well, when I see characters do something stupid, I start rooting for the monster. Yeah. Hundred percent. Same. Yeah. If you yeah. don't care if you don't care for the characters, you won't care if they get killed. You have I'm to gonna enjoy this one way or another. So I'm either with you or I'm against you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. And if you're trying to endow, like that's why some of our, I think Julie and I always agree, like some of our best our favorite horror movies, you care about the characters. You have to be let in and 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 comes with setting it up beautifully from the beginning and wonderful writing. Yeah, uh, and that's what Stephen King is a master at, yes. you know. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This was amazing. I am like smiling over here. I've laughed. I've cried. I've done everything over here in this little tiny closet today well, talking with wow. you. Well, we love horror, don't we? That's yes. Awesome. Yeah. So much. And I just want to thank you so much. Uh, we have a couple questions we like to ask her towards the end of our interview that we always ask. Um, because our show is called Horror Movie Survival Guide, we're always trying to figure out how do we survive how what's the best way a character can survive a horror movie so i guess since we've been talking about Candyman today i don't know how do we survive Candyman, or if you have a a pro tip for how to survive a horror movie we'd love to hear that tonight Reeve. well how to survive Candyman is pretty simple do not say Candyman five times unless you have a legitimate reason mm-hmm. and i think that's the revelation of the new Candyman. he's still not a force to be messed with but if you're coming with sincerity, I think you might be okay. Maybe you'll be okay. Depending you on- You in a pinch? You in a pinch? <laughs> I, I'm going to like, that'll be like my last, last resort. <laughs> and I think just in general, I'll, I'll talk about something that drives me crazy. Because one of my favorite uh, horror subgenres is like horror movies in the woods of all types. Like mm-hmm. you move into a deserted house, like a house in the woods. Or oh, you're yeah. for a weekend in a cabin in the woods. Sure. When people are being chased in the woods- and they stay on the path <laughs> rather oh, yeah. than the woods. The woods is huge. There's like a million hiding places in the woods. Like this this monster chasing you would have to spend a heck of a long time trying to figure out where you are if you would just get off the path. If you're on the path, I can see you a half mile down the road. That's good advice. Why man. are you on the path? <laughs> they always do this. So get off the beaten path, kids. Sometimes yeah, you gotta gotta veer away. Parallel to the path. I get it. You don't want to get lost. Okay. Even if you're parallel, there's just like so many more places to hide. I just think more characters need to hide, but not under the covers. That's the worst hiding place. And if you're not a child, that's not gonna work. Not under the bed. Like hide or at least pick up a damn weapon. Yeah. Looking always looking for a weapon is a good is a good uh, survival guide tip. Yep. Oh. When you're in your surroundings, always look for those weapons. Got to find it. Something heavy. 
just yeah. something heavy and hit him more than once with it too oh yeah don't don't stop don't dr hit him Why once and drop the weapon everyone? come on double tap double tap kids at double least tap. double tap <laughs> and that's those are my guides that's 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 my advice these are wonderful tips it's almost like you like educate people about horror <laughs> i hope i can remember <laughs> if someone's ever chasing me in the woods <laughs> i'll be looking down at the, my feet and realize i'm on the path like, oh damn <laughs> i'm on the path <laughs> Of course, of course. We always forget our best advice when we're in the midst of it, but we try, we train, we try, we train, yes, we try. We awesome. Um, anything else we want to promote or where can people find you out on the internet? Well, I'm very active on Twitter at Tanana Reeve Dew, uh, Tanana Like Banana, uh, Reeve, R-I-V-E, Dew, D-U-E, and also Instagram at Tanana Reeve Dew. And yeah, I have a six part black horror course that uh, my husband and I co-taught as a result of the popularity of the UCLA course, but not everyone's at UCLA. And Jordan Peele did very generously agree to just Skype in for that class. So we have interviews with Jordan Peele and Tony Todd and other horror uh, writers and filmmakers. And you can find that course at www.sunkenplaceclass.com. It's a digital download. You take it at your own pace. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really appreciate it. You are a delight. Thank um, you. This was fun. Thank you. Such a pleasure to meet you. I mean, I, I will talk horror any day of the week. So you let us know. <laughs> I love touch. it. Let's keep in touch on the socials. Oh, oh yes, yeah, please. definitely will. We will keep All in right. touch and chat again forevermore. Um, you, you're stuck with us now. We have reached out to you. We emailed you like you emailed Jordan. And now here we are. So yeah. keep going. All right. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for joining the Horror Movie Survival Guide. You can catch us on all the social medias at Horror Movie Survival Guide, um, as well as we are into survival on Twitter. Um, and uh, you can follow our Patreon, help us out. It's a still a little independent show that we put together ourselves. Um, you can also get some merch at our Teespring store. We have a wonderful week. We'll see you again real soon. Thanks, guys.